Father, thank you for uh, the time together, Lord. Thank you for the call that you've laid on each and every one of us to follow your son, Jesus, and to follow him by hearkening to his word through your holy scriptures. So give us ears to hear what he would say to us today. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. A 2016 survey asked, all things considered, do you think the world is getting better, worse, or neither? In the United States, 65% thought that the world is getting worse. 23% said neither. And only 6% of Americans responded that the world is getting better. Where do you stand on the question? Why? What do you think? Better? Worse? Neither? Yeah, Esther. Worse because the, the amount of sin keeps on getting worse. Okay, worse. yep. So, and the amount of sinners, too. <laughs> There's more and more of them all the time. Yeah, okay. So, a, a worse vote? Yeah, Bob? Worse, and um, because there's an intentional abandonment from God's word or natural law or revealed law. Okay. I mean, it's just an intentional abandonment. That intentionality to it, like Romans 1, the suppressing exactly of the truth. what it is. It's yeah. suppressing the truth. The truth. Yeah. Uh, Chip, yeah. I think there's always the temptation to kind of like, there's a word for it, but where you make, that you make, these are unprecedented times. Right. These have never been better. These have never been, been, uh, been worse. And I think, I think, you know, we, you know, I remember the summer at camp, there was a prisoner who was talking about how the early years of the, uh, of, of the, of, in the uh, U.S. and the, 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 the colonies and stuff, people didn't go to church. Like 80% of people did not go to church. And right. you think of everyone as being like a pilgrim and going yeah. to church and everything, and they weren't. Right. You know, and so I think, uh, I think because the lions are doing well, <laughs> I'm going with that. That's good. <laughs> so very, very near term, you know. But, um, yeah. but, but I think, you know, um, yeah, I think you can always at any point in our in the entire history of humanity look how things are getting worse. I think in general things are getting worse. I think there is going to be, there's a, like a, you know, we're headed towards the, 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 we're always headed towards the end time. Sure. Right? So it's not going to get better. It's not getting better. Yeah. Yeah, Leslie. I think worse because with all of the media today and the instant gratification, whatever that we have, we're being so bombarded mm. with things that are mm -hmm. morally, to me, morally wrong. Mm -hmm. And it's just, you know, and you just, they keep hitting us with it and hitting us with it. And the more you hear it, again, the, 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 yeah. the more you're worn down to sure. those things. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, Hans. Uh, about the same. Okay. Uh, I quote Solomon. Mm. There, there's nothing new under the sun. Okay. Uh huh. Yeah. It's like this is the way it's been a long time, and it's going to continue that way. Okay. Good. Yeah, Laura. Well, what are we worse than what? You go into ah, good question. Of it, yeah. You know, there's horrible things going on, and God flooded the whole earth, and you know, that was pretty bad. Again, yeah. so <laughs> are we that bad yet? So I guess I would probably say neither, because. There's still evil threatening all over the world, but then also, as Leslie said, we do have more media, right. and the gospels also be sharing more too. So sure. I think we're still weighing each other out. It's just in different ways. So I guess I would ask what we're comparing the worst to. It's a good. That's a good question. We're going to come back to this later. Let me give you the short answer right now. Things are worse than we ever imagined, and better than we ever could have hoped. <laughs> Both of those. But we'll get there. All right, let's dig into, we're going to uh, pick up with just the last few verses of chapter 7. Uh, we left off there last week. So picking up with chapter 7 of Hebrews, starting with verse 26 to the end of the chapter here. 
<clears throat> reads this. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who's been made perfect forever. All right, so it starts out with a kind of job description almost of the great high priest. And so number two on your handout, Jesus' qualities are fitting to our need. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about that word fitting um, in, con in connection with his baptism. Because this is the same word that Jesus used when talking to John the Baptist, when John tried to um, dissuade Jesus from being baptized. And Jesus said, no, it is fitting for us to do so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Same word here. It's that fitting. It's that hand in glove uh, kind of going together. And how so? Well, he lays out several qualities of our Lord. First of all, that he's devout, or our translation just says holy, but the word carries a, a different connotation to it. He's devout, unlike our half-hearted devotion and our fickle faith. He's innocent. Literally, the word is akakos, without evil, which is unlike us with our guilt and our corruption. He's undefiled, unlike us with our hearts tainted by sin. It says that he's separated from sinners, and I wrestled with this a little bit because I mean, one of the greatest charge against, charges against Jesus was that, you know, he goes and he's a friend of sinners, right? He goes and eats with them. And it seems contrary to his character to say he was separated from sinners. But as I dug into this deeper, what it's conveying here is that not that he didn't have anything to do with sinners, but rather that he wasn't corrupted by sinners, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so unlike our willingness to go with the crowd. And then finally, it says he's exalted above the heavens, unlike us in our earthbound nature. Jesus is like us in all the ways that count. He shares our human nature. He's with us in every way, goes through all the temptations that we do, and yet without sin. And that little clause, without sin, is kind of spelled out here in these qualities that we have in Hebrews 7.26. What does that mean for him to be without sin? Well, he's not like us in these areas. He's like us in these ways that matter, but he's also not like us in the ways that really matter. And in that way, he fills that job description. Right? He is fitting to our need. He's the one for the job. Then it goes on to say, maybe the, the most important piece of all, at least it goes hand in hand with us with this, that he does not offer sacrifices daily as the high priests of old did, for, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, because he did this once for all. Let's say once for all. Once, once for, for all. all. Oh, I love that <clears throat> phrase. Such an important phrase. Jesus is the once for all, the cross of Christ is the once for all sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And I often invoke the Greek word, the single word that Jesus utters. This is in John 19.30 when he says on the cross, tetelestai, it is finished. It's in that perfect aspect, that perfect tense in the Greek, which means it's a past action with present and ongoing and indefinite results, right? Indefinitely future, right? So Jesus says, it is finished. All is accomplished. I am the once for all sacrifice for your sins and the sins of the whole world. Not just now, not just when you happen to be walking around, not just for the past, but all future as well. It's all gathered up in him, the once for all sacrifice. That's who he is. And he has offered that um, so that now we are able to rest 
in that sacrifice. This was a really key verse and key concept at the time of the Reformation when one of the um, key sticking points between the Lutheran reformers and the Roman Catholics, for the Roman Catholics, the, the, the sacrifice of the mass, that's what they would call it, um, the Eucharist was not just giving the body and blood of Jesus, but it was, in a sense, a re-sacrifice. So this idea of the sacrifice of the mass is that we are almost re-sacrificing Jesus in order to merit the forgiveness of sins. The movement is from uh, earth up to heaven, and it's by us making this sacrifice of Jesus himself once again. The Lutheran reformer said, this is utterly contrary to the message of the scriptures, which is not that Jesus needs to continue to offer up his, himself over and over again. I mean, it seems to fly directly in the face of this text from Hebrews, and it does. Say, no, 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 no. His sacrifice was once for all. And what happens when we receive the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, is God continues to dole out the gifts, the fruits of that once-for-all sacrifice. He's still feeding us from the Lord's one-time sacrifice that, that it just keeps on coming. You might connect it there with uh, the feeding of the 5,000, right? Where the Lord always has more to offer. So the question that this raises for me, then, is if Jesus has made the once-for-all sacrifice, capital S, and he has... What role do our little s sacrifices serve? We talked about this just a, a moment ago, that, that call to adventure, the adventure of discipleship, is in many respects uh, a call to sacrifice. But if Jesus is the once-for-all sacrifice, what role, what place do our little s sacrifices have in the life of faith, in discipleship, in the, in the kingdom of God? Yeah, Court. How can you show love unless you sacrifice? Okay. So court says, how can you show love unless you sacrifice? And so sacrifice in that respect is part and parcel of, of love. Now, by that act of love and sacrifice, how is that different than Jesus' act of, of love and his sacrifice? That's not just for court, but for others of you. Because he makes a good point. Okay, so love is essentially an act of sacrifice. Okay, it's a lot bigger. What else would you say? Yeah, Laura? His surrender, that total, that total surrender, giving himself over. Sure, absolutely. We're always withholding parts of ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, Bob? Well, his is the sacrifice of sacrifices. Right. And I would suggest if, if our small sacrifices, first, they're not sacrifices to God. His was the sacrifice to God Good. for us. I'm right. But I'll probably go out on a limb here. I think our sacrifices are intentionally bound to his. In other words, they're still a part of his coming into the world. Yeah. So as we participate with him in why he was sacrificed, yeah. we join that stream of love into the world, which costs us everything. Yeah. But it's a part, it's because we've been brought into him. Yes. So our sacrifices flow from him. But, but they are... They're the small ripples of the great rock that fell into the Good. Ugh. You should be a preacher, you know that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, so, I see you, Leslie. Hold that thought. I just, while he's saying that, keep your finger there and go to Colossians 120. I think it's not 128. Where's that? Colossians 1. There's this mysterious verse, but just as Bob's talking there, I think it has to do with what, what he's saying. 124. Colossians 124. Um, Paul says... He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, 
and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. That notion that in, I rejoice in my sufferings because I'm in my flesh I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. Now, is he saying that in some, in some respect Jesus' sacrifice was insufficient? Absolutely not. That would run counter to everything that Paul says in churches. I think what he's teaching is more along the lines of what Bob is saying, is that through our, our sacrifices, our lowercase s, which are done in response to his, that they find meaning and purpose as they are gathered up and um, incorporated into his once-for-all sacrifice. Right? That we are riding on his tail feathers in that respect. And that, that makes all the difference. Right? That it's not in vain. Those sacrifices we make are not in vain, but that they are redeemed in the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus. Okay, yeah, Leslie. Well, I think our sacrifices ebb and flow. Sure. You know, one day we'll do one thing, and the next day not so much, and right. whatever. So, and his, he never veered from his, right. his uh, destiny. Right. It, it was just always there. Yes. The only thing he ever said was, if you can take this sure. from me. But, but he didn't veer. That's, he that's didn't, a great he didn't point. didn't go away from it. Yeah, there's that, that wonderful phrase, I think it's in Luke's Gospel, when it says that Jesus set his face like flint toward Jerusalem. He knew what his destiny was, and he pursued it doggedly. Doggedly. So, okay, there isn't that ebb and flow. There isn't that kind of back and forth. Um, when St. Paul is on trial before King Agrippa, he says something really fascinating. He says, you know, I've, I've been faithful to what our fathers of old have said, and this is what was written, that the Christ must suffer, and being the first to rise from the dead, he will, in, in, in the original language, it has no choice but to, mm proclaim like to the Gentiles and to our people Israel. So he says Jesus has three things that he must do. Mm. One, he must die. Two, he must rise. And three, he must proclaim light to mm. the world. In mm -hmm. other words, that's the third piece of his work. Huh? Mm -hmm. We get to participate in that piece. Mm -hmm. We don't do this one. We right. don't do the second one. But we do get, and I think that's what Paul's talking about. Mm -hmm. by, there's something not yet complete and that is we're invited to participate with him in his third action of himself going to the ends of the earth. Yeah, that's very good. And him bringing the kingdom, which is continuing now, a work that's continuing now in history. Good. I, this, I, you guys, have, I think, really have, have nailed it. Just that sense of um, theologians make a distinction between the atoning sacrifice of Jesus and the thanksgiving sacrifices of his people, right? So this is, this is Jesus' once for all, that there's only one atoning sacrifice made to God, right? Whereas our thanksgiving sacrifices are, are made repeatedly, not unlike the sacrifices of the priest of old, now as his royal priesthood, so made repeatedly by the royal priesthood, and it's done in response to Jesus' sacrifice. Right? 
uh, his once for all sacrifice to God for sin. Okay, our Thanksgiving sacrifices are made not for sin, but in in gratitude. Right, gratitude for grace. And, uh, and participating then in his, in his mission. More could be said about that. But that's the fundamental distinction is that, you know, the atoning sacrifice made to God for sin. Thanksgiving sacrifices, in many respects, are done. They're not offered up. They're offered to God in the sense that uh, they are acceptable to him, pleasing to him. This will come up later in Hebrews. Peter uses similar language. Um, but they're offered for the sake of your neighbor, right? You, you do it not to appease God, but in order to extend his blessing to others. Okay. Getcha. Is this the justification and sanctification? I, I, it maps pretty closely, yeah, right. for sure. So like the gift of justification comes as a result of the atoning sacrifice of Christ. And then our sanctification, our life in Christ, is in, in many respects offering Thanksgiving, sac the sa Thanksgiving sacrifices um, for, for the sake of others. So there's, I think there's a lot of, um, it's not one-to-one, -one, but it's very close, yeah. So is the problem you're trying to solve here is that we don't that we don't believe that our sacrifices are atoning sacrifices or that we participate in our own uh, justification to God that what Jesus does all is, it, is that why you're making this distinction and why the preacher makes this is because there, there's a confusion as to why you might as the holy priesthood make sacrifices yeah I think I think that's a big part of it like what what place do our lives of faith then play. If Jesus is the once-for-all sacrifice, and he is, then why would I sacrifice, right? If, if it's all done, if it's all taken care of, where, what, what place, what role does mine have in the, the overall economy of salvation and of God's kingdom? Um, and so this is a way in which we think through that, of, of how our sacrifices, that life of faith, is played out under that, that blessing, that ages of, of Christ. Does that make sense? Are they using sacrifices like the Old Testament sacrifices where we're talking about where they're sacrificing animals, which right. were sacrificed because that was resources and cost money, right? That's the reason yeah. yep. you sacrifice animals in, right. in one sense, right? And so but these sacrifices are like um, serving others, putting themselves in. Yeah, I mean, right? Scripture talks about service for sure, um, but singing, uh, you know, singing songs of praise. Um, uh, making gifts, offerings, tithes, these sorts of things. Um, and on and on it goes. And in many, you think about in, within the worship service itself, how there's those Eucharistic or Thanksgiving sacrifices that are offered in response to what God has done. Then we give our offerings. We pray for our neighbor. It's our, the, the fruit of lips that praise his name, the uh, preacher says. Yeah, Tom. Yeah, I was thinking about uh, Cornelius Caesarea. Yes, yeah. Peter visited he was doing things that were pleasing to God. Right. There's still things we do that. Yeah. God. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, um, Paul, Peter will use the same language that we've seen from Leviticus. We'll talk about those Thanksgiving sacrifices that are done for others rise up to God as a pleasing aroma. Just like the, the sacrificed goat of old had that pleasing aroma to his divine nostrils. And so very much so that it pleases him and honors him in those actions. You, earlier in this section, as you were going at these various distinctions between Jesus and us, and you hit separated from sinners. Yeah. Um, and, and it's preceded by he's a high priest. And, and so I'm thinking of separated from sinners. 
is an intentional ordination. At that moment, he was, you think of Aaron and, and boys, sure. were separated from the community of right. Israel right. through a specific uh, ceremony or ritual for a specific purpose. They were separated from sinners to serve sinners. Yeah, good. And, and I'm seeing the same thing here. And then if we're invited into the royal priesthood, we too are separated from sinners for a very specific purpose, to serve sinners. Yeah. So, so our priesthood is always, always a sacrifice for the sake of their salvation. Yeah, that's right. That's good. And uh, it's pointed out often that the, the Greek word for church is ekklesia. Ekklesia. And there's uh, the, the root Spelling it right or not. Uh, and you can't read that one. Um, <laughs> it looks like Ecclesia. Yeah, right. Um, the, uh, the Greek word literally means to be called out of. And um, the, the etymology is a little bit fuzzy, but people will, will make this point that in a sense, to be a disciple, to be part of the church, is to be called out of the world for the sake of the world. right? Um, to be called out of the matting crowd for the sake of the matting crowd. right? Um, that's, that's who we are. It's not so that we can somehow preserve our sanctity, be afraid of the world, um, but set apart to serve. Set apart to serve. That's the goal. That's the idea. Yes, Sally? I don't know if I have this right, but um, I see that sacrifice is kind of a manifestation of a changed heart by the Holy Spirit. Sure. And the people that serve other people, they, it's, it's, they just do it because they have a changed heart and yeah. they love the people that I see that um, help other people. They don't even know, realize it or, or label it. It happens spontaneously. It just happens spontaneously and because they have a heart changed by the Holy Spirit because Jesus died for us. Yeah, yep, that's exactly right. That's well put. Okay, so let's move on then to the beginning of chapter 8. And let's read verses 1 through 5, Hebrews 8. Now the point in what we are saying is this. Oh, thank goodness, preacher. You're eight chapters deep. So the point. <laughs> the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it's necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest at all. Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. Um, one way to look at these few verses here is that the preacher is laying out why Jesus can't be an earthly high priest. Why he can't be an earthly high priest. And so, you know, if, if you're to look at it just from that negative kind of way, then it accents also the positive side of it. Here's the point. Jesus can't be an earthly high priest because, for one thing, he's seated at God's right hand. Okay? He's not merely serving in the uh, temple, in the synagogue. He's seated at God's right hand. That goes back to Psalm 110 again also. Secondly, he serves in the true tent of heaven. The tent, another word for the, the tabernacle. So there, heaven is described as a tent, um, for instance, in the Psalms. It gives this picture that the whole creation is, this, is God's tabernacle, and his dwelling. That's where the Son of God serves now. 
And moreover, as we've already said, his sacrifice has already been offered. Doesn't need to be offered again, can't be offered again. So for these reasons, he can't be a mere earthly high priest. He is the heavenly great high priest uh, who reigns and rules for us. And so just to, to jump ahead to that next point, he goes on to say that Jesus is the substance, not the shadow. He's the genuine article, not the copy. And this is a really key theme that the preacher, he's already kind of alluded to it. He's going to develop it more over the next couple of chapters. But this idea of a, a type and an anti-type, a type and an anti-type. And if you um, joined us for any of our um, Advent services, I was kind of using these categories to talk about how um, people and events and even um, buildings from the Old Testament serve as foreshadowings, anticipations of the incarnation when Christ comes. So um, the idea is that a type is, for instance, the tabernacle. The tabernacle is a type that points to God's dwelling on the earth in the presence of his people. Now Jesus is the anti-type because he's the fulfillment of that, that now that tabernacle points to him. And John 1.14, John literally says, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, right? pitched his tent in our midst. And in that way, the tabernacle was the type to which Jesus is the anti-type. Just speaking literally of, of where these ideas came from in the ancient Greek world, is you would have, um, well, picture like um, uh, the um, printing press. Okay? And so you would have those different, um, the letters or whatever, right? You'd have like the metal cast. And that would be the anti-type. And then it gets laid on the, the paper, the parchment, leaves the ink, that's the type, right? And we still call it this, right? Typeset, what have you. So you have the anti-type and the type. The idea being that the, the substance of it is that anti-type, the fulfillment. Whereas the, the type is just the, the, the shadow. It's the, the foreshadowing, the anticipation. All right, let me just pause there. That's kind of like some deep stuff, maybe getting a headache a little bit. Questions or clarifications about that? Well, so it's pointing forward to how Jesus now is the fulfillment. He's the substance. And what the preacher is saying is, look, what you guys were serving before, what you have been serving, is now fulfilled in Jesus. In many respects, what he's calling them to is to say, don't go back to the type. Don't go back to the copy. Y'all, the substance is right here in front of you. Why are you chasing after shadows when the one who has cast those shadows has come? Uh, go to Colossians 2, where Paul makes a, a similar point. Keep your finger in Hebrews. Turn to Colossians 2. And Paul uses very similar language, and I think to a, a similar end, um, writing to the, the church in Colossae. Um, so well, pick up at verse 16 of Colossians chapter 2. It says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Now, note this, verse 17. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together, through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ 
You died to the elemental spirits of the world. It's another phrase he uses to describe that idea of the shadows, the copies. Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Paul's saying in particular here is that, listen, you guys are running after the law. You're putting yourself once again under the yoke of the law, which gives you these straightforward prohibitions. Do not taste. Do not touch. And now that you have this freedom in Christ, now that you have that substance of the gift of the Holy Spirit, why are you retreating back to the, the copy, the shadow of these simple, straightforward prohibitions and commands? He's not saying that those are bad, but he's saying that those were all pointing forward to the fulfillment that has come in Jesus. So my question for you is, once we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, why would we ever settle for shop-worn substitutes, right? Once we have encountered the substance in the gospel of, of the freedom that we have in Jesus, why, as Paul says in Galatians 5, why, do you, why would we submit once again to the yoke of slavery? What's the appeal there? What's the draw when we have the, the real deal, the genuine article in our Lord? Yeah. Um, habit? Okay, maybe it's just habit. Actually, Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 8. He refers to that. So sometimes it's just you habitually have lived away, you've had a certain kind of mindset, and so you just fall back on that. Yeah. Sinful arrogance. Sinful arrogance. Like, okay, no, I can, I mean, this is uh, where, I, I, as long as I've just got the right information, I've got the right rules, you give it to me, I'm going to do it. I've got what it takes. It's arrogance. Fool, foolhardy. Yeah. Other reasons that we, we go back, we retreat. Well, at least these folks, um, there's a part of me like in Acts 15 where you've got this profound profound division in the church between circumcised and not. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And a part of me, because the circumcised party always gets a bum rap, mm. we think, but at that point, a big part of me thinks, if I was a pious Jew who had become a follower of Jesus now, I would have thought, you know, he kept his promise. Circumcision was a promise that he'd come. Right. All the more reason I should keep my promise to circumcise. Sure, right. You know, so in that way, there's a piety to that. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. And so it, it doesn't necessarily come from bad motives. There could be a, a certain kind of piety to it. Yeah, yeah, Anne. Yeah, good. And we like to be able to measure things. We like to be able to measure things. That's right. I was looking at a uh, like a, a calendar, like a planner sort of thing. Um, I'm always interested in how those are organized and designed. And in this particular one, and I knew immediately that it was not for me, is, uh, the guy said, and here at the top of every single day, I've got your metrics for the day. Right? Here's your metrics that you're going to hit to know that you had a successful day. Mm. And I'm like... Okay, my metric is I'm going to sit with an old person for a couple of hours and talk to them, right? I, that doesn't necessarily add by, up by the metrics of the world, you know? Um, but we like, we like clear metrics, and the law sometimes can give us that, or at least give us the impression of that. Yeah, good. 
And there's so much about, um, this, is, this is not to disparage God's law by any means, but what the preacher's trying to say, what Paul's saying, what Jesus himself says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, that we would recognize that now he is that fulfillment. He is that substance. And so we ought not to, to be content with the shadow. Go back to just you know, the, the prohibitions, those things that seem to have that, that wisdom, he says, the elemental spirits, but instead to live into the freedom that we have in Christ, to embrace that life by the Spirit, right? um, which is harder, it's scarier, it feels not as safe, but ultimately it's, it's the life that he has for us. It's the adventure of discipleship and following after the Lord Jesus. It's not just, here, this is what you got to do. Just check those boxes. All right. Well, then let's continue on. <clears throat> got a few minutes left. I want to um, touch on verses 6 and 7 in particular. So, Turning, turning now to verse 6, he says, But now Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Okay, these couple of verses are very significant for the overall argument that the preacher is making, but also just in the... Uh, the, the overall Christian worldview, and it gets to, touches on why I started um, our study with the question that I did from that survey about if the world's getting better or worse or, or neither. Um, first of all, the preacher's saying, listen, the old is passing away, but now everything has changed. And he uses this phrase, but now, nunida in, in the Greek, which is a significant freighted phrase. And, um, I, I'll use it in my own preaching, as I did today. It kind of signals this key turning point in just rhetorically in the message. And we won't look at all of these today, but in, um, I've given you some examples where Paul uses this. In Romans 3.21, he, he talks about how all of us, uh, the law has shut everyone's mouth. Okay? It's stopped all of our mouths. But now the righteousness of God has come. In 1 Corinthians 15.20, 15.19 talks about if Christ is not raised, then we are of all people the most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised. Ephesians 2.13 talks about how the, the law was this dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, but now that dividing wall has been taken down. But now signals that something different has happened. Something new has come. And that's what's come in Jesus. He is the the more excellent high priest. He brings a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant that he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. Jesus is that long-awaited mediator. And the, the word there, mediator, the idea is someone who intervenes to make or to restore peace and friendship, an arbitrator, a go-between. It's the word that Job uses in Job 9. It says, for God is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should both that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Well, now in Jesus there is. One who has come is our arbiter, our arbitrator, to mediate between us and God, to bring us together. But the key point is this. That second covenant, as he calls it here, or the new covenant, supersedes the first, which means that the best is yet to come. These better promises betoken or point forward to a better covenant. Now, why is this significant? Um, this would have been very, very countercultural and contrary to way, the way most people of um, the preacher's time understood the world. 
Um, the way that they understood the world was illustrated by metals. And you're familiar with this because you'll hear the idea of people will talk about a golden age. And we'll just talk about that kind of figuratively. You know, it was the, the golden age of jazz, or it was the golden age of baseball, or it was the, whatever. That was like the primo time. According to um, the, the ancient and classical worldview, then, there was, it was a declension narrative. It was a decline. So you started with the gold age, then you had the silver age, the bronze age, until finally you get to the iron age. And if you read, for instance, Hesiod was this um, uh, uh, classical historian. When he talks about the Iron Age, he sounds like St. Paul in many respects. He's like, when you get to the Iron Age, nobody's you know, people are hating their parents. They don't listen to anybody. It's just it's bad. And uh, Jerome, an early uh, teacher in the church, he likewise would map this out and say, he, he would point out, here's when we were in the gold, here's when we were in silver, bronze, and now we're, now we're in iron. This was the customary way to understand that the, world, the way that the world was unfolding. It's getting worse and worse and worse. And as some of you said, it seems pretty accurate. <laughs> We're getting worse and worse and worse. This is the worldview, the idea that's conveyed in this famous poem, great poem by Robert Frost. Put it on here for you. Brief poem. He says, nature's first green is gold, her hardest hue to hold. Her early leaf's a flower, but only so an hour. Then leaf subsides to leaf, so Eden sank to grief. So dawn goes down to day, nothing gold can stay. Kind of depressing. Uh, <laughs> sounds like winter. But It sounds like winter. But, um, but that's a good point, Dave, because this is just the thing. In the cycle of the seasons, we see both of these. There is that decline from summer to fall to winter. But guess what? Spring, Spring is coming, right? Spring is coming. The Christian worldview, the biblical worldview, what the preacher is, is um, alluding to here is the fact that now, because Jesus is risen from the dead, it has uh, both affirmed that declension there, that things, yeah, in many respects are getting worse and worse and worse, and yet also flipped it on its head. Because now what we are looking forward to is the consummation and the renewal of all things. I noted on here, think about Jesus' first miracle. It's in John chapter 2. Remember what his first miracle is? Water into wine. The water into wine. wine. Which is significant at a couple of levels. Um, first of all, it goes from water to wine. So it goes from the, the lesser to the greater, in that sense. Water's important. Wine, even better. Um, <clears throat> but also, do you remember what the, um, the maitre d', um, the, the head guy, he says when he tastes the wine? Oh, yeah. He's, yeah. yeah, he's blown away. Because everybody usually, you know, you, you give first. the best stuff first. And when everybody's a little, a little tipsy, that's when you bring out the two-buck chuck. Right? That's how it normally works. He's like, no, wait a second. You've, you've gone and saved the best for last. Cue Whitney Houston or whatever that is. Um, no. Um, that now there is this sense in which things are getting better and better. And also, in a world in which it does seem to be the case that left on its own, everything succumbs to entropy, the second law of thermodynamics. It gets worse. What seems to be like the one... The one exception to that rule. What's something that actually gets better with age? Cheese. Wine. Cheese. <laughs> <laughs> Whiskey, too. 
And that's why... <laughs> Jesus' cheese miracle is in the Apocrypha. It's, uh, it's, in, it's a... It's a Wine, y'all. Wine. <laughs> um, I think that Jesus is very, he's, he's very strategic in this miracle. Even as, he, you know, he, he kind of does that move with his, with his mom where he's like, ah, oh, my hour has not yet come. And yet there's something very uh, fitting for him, for that to be his first kickoff sign. Because this is precisely what he does. In the world where everything is getting worse and worse, now in him and through him, Things are actually going to get better. And that's why I say that right now, it is true that things are worse than we ever could have imagined. Sin runs rampant. Satan still holds sway over too many hearts. And yet it's also better than we ever could have hoped. Because a day is coming, and it could be today, when our Lord Jesus will return and bring his kingdom in full and restore all things. The best is yet to come. Amen? Yeah. All right. We'll stop there and pick up next week with the latter half of chapter eight. Thank you.